Hello, welcome to the Notable Speeches podcast. Today, a speech notable because of its topic. It's about the long and still not entirely successful battle against influenza. Although most people living today have never seen anything like the current coronavirus pandemic, an even worse pandemic struck just over a century ago, the 1918 Spanish flu, which claimed an estimated 50 to 100 million lives worldwide, including more than half a million people in the U.S. At the time, no one knew what caused the flu or how to treat it. And as you'll hear in this speech, although doctors and researchers have made great strides in understanding and treating influenza, a true preventive vaccine for the flu remains elusive. The speaker is Dr. Jeremy Brown, Director of Emergency Care Research at the National Institutes of Health and author of the book Influenza, the Hundred-Year Hunt to Cure the Deadliest Disease in History, published in 2018. Dr. Brown holds medical degrees from University College Hospital Medical School in London. This address was presented in March 2019 at an event sponsored by the National Archives in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. So we're here to talk about influenza and the plague that struck us 100 years ago resonates all the way through till today. As you mentioned, more, more people were killed in the influenza virus than in the wars. 50 to 100 million people worldwide. Here in the United States, 675,000 deaths, civilian deaths. And of the 116,000 combat casualties, U.S. combat casualties killed in World War I, over half actually died from disease, and that was the majority of that was influenza. It's a sobering thought to think that if you take those statistics and multiply them out by the current population of the United States, those 675,000 deaths would turn out to be about 3 million deaths in today's numbers. So put that into perspective and think what, 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 uh, what that would be like to live through such a thing. But back in 1918, there was no known cause. Viruses had actually not been discovered yet. So people were dropping from this disease called influenza, but nobody really knew what it was from. And we're going to return to some of the, the thoughts that were behind this. Back in 1918, they had literally had no idea. And one other thing to put this into perspective, as you all know, uh, we're sadly living through an epidemic of a very different kind today. It's the opioid epidemic, which has claimed so many deaths uh, in this country. The news over the last couple of years was actually that the death rate is so high that it has dropped the average life expectancy in the US. That if you look at the average life expectancy because of the large numbers of deaths of younger people, the average life expectancy has dropped. That's shocking. How much has it dropped by? Well, if you look at the data, it's dropped by one-tenth of a year. The 1918 great flu epidemic caused such a large loss of life that it dropped the average life expectancy in the US by 12 years. 12 years, 120 times greater than what we have seen with the current opioid crisis. So this and the following few slides are all from the Washington Post. And I think just tell a very brief story of a very much more complicated event. So this is the uh, Washington Post from Saturday, September 14th, 1918. It's not the front page. And it tells us 
that the uh, Spanish influenza was spreading across the US. It wasn't really reported yet in the papers in large numbers, but it had begun to spread across the US. Now, the following day, the Washington Post reported that 90 people had died of influenza in Boston and that the malady seemed to have been sweeping from east to west. It wasn't actually, it was actually uh, probably started somewhere in the Midwest, but the malady was, was already sort of ramping up and the very next day they reported that 90 people in Boston uh, had died. These were deaths amongst soldiers and sailors. The plague builds momentum, more and more people die. And by October the 2nd, on the front page of the Washington Post, we were told that the work hours have changed, that the federal day has been staggered to check the influenza spread, and that people are to take shifts. Now, Washington, D.C. was not the only city to do this by any means. In fact, it happened in the most of the cities that were, that were affected. The, the idea was that if we could stop people from mingling, although we didn't know that it was a virus that was causing this, we did understand somehow that keeping away from people was probably a good idea. So theaters were closed down in some places. Restaurants either closed or staggered their hours. Stores had staggered hours in an attempt to keep people spaced away from each other. So the working hours of the federal government changed around the beginning of October. By the middle of October here in Washington, 91 uh, people, uh, more people had died in a short amount of time, and uh, it was suggested that the crest is now in sight. That was actually quite hopeful. There was no evidence of that, uh, but it was hoped that perhaps we're nearing uh, the end of it. By December the 8th of 1918, the Washington Post had thought that we were coming to an end, and it put this little, little piece, this little snippet, that said that Spanish influenza is more deadly than war. And that is indeed the case. We know that. But what struck me here is the placing of this piece of journalism. It's a back page, page 20, tucked in next to an ad for dining room chairs, that the, that the epidemic was more deadly than the war. Why was this not front page news? What had happened? And there are some various suggestions there. Some believe that there was some kind of tacit agreement, not censorship, but tacit agreement between the newspapers and the government to play this thing down. It was reported, it wasn't hidden, but it, you'd have to sort of look for this to really understand what was going on. So these are just a few examples from the Washington Post that tell us uh, a little bit about what happened here in Washington, D.C. So for today, what I'd like to do is focus on three areas of research that I describe in the book. The first looks at how treatments of, of influenza have evolved. What did we do 100 years ago to treat this terrible, deadly disease, and what do we do today? And I think you will find that actually it's changed less than you would have hoped. The second focus um, is going to be how our understanding of the influ influenza virus has changed over the last century. What was it? that we thought caused influenza 100 years ago? And what do we know about that same virus today? And there, I think we can all agree, there has been an absolute remarkable uh, evolution and leap in our understanding of exactly what's going on. And finally, we're going to look at how we can prevent ourselves from catching the flu in the first place by looking at vaccines, what vaccines were like back then, 100 years ago, 
uh, and where we are today, and we'll find again that we still have a lot of work to do. So let's start with the treatments. The treatments were not terribly effective. They included mercury, tree bark, inhaling factory gases. Yes, that actually happened. People were reported uh, in the south of England to be taking the their families and their children to local gas works, actually munition factories, where the toxic fumes were thought to somehow reduce the likelihood of getting influenza. Actually, this turns out not to be as crazy as it sounds because many of these gas works actually contain chlorine, and that probably reduced the amount of free virus floating around. So it wasn't a completely crazy thing to take your um, children to inhale factory gases. Um, there were some upsides of treatment back then. Uh, whiskey was extremely popular, uh, as was champagne. These were prescribed by uh, senior physicians, and so not everything was, was difficult. Um, enemas were used. Enemas actually were used to treat everything back then. There was really very little you could do, so an enema was thought to be to clean everything out. So enemas were quite popular. And one of the most remarkable things is bloodletting. Now, bloodletting is the uh, process by which blood is removed from the body and the thought is that with that removal of the blood you are taking out the bad humor, the bad thing that is in the blood causing the, the disease. Um, it dates back to at least the 5th century BC uh, and George Washington was probably killed by bloodletting as he lay dying from, uh, uh, from a throat infection. His senior doctors suggested that we let blood but what is remarkable to me is that bloodletting was used in the great flu epidemic of 1918. And not just by what we might call quacks today, but this was prescribed by mainstream physicians. So that's what life was like when you had influenza back 100 years ago or so. What about today? How do we do today? Well. For the vast majority of us, influenza is a little bit of a, an inconvenience. It's not life-threatening, and it's something that we generally deal with at home. Uh, our friends or our family come around, give us some hot soup. We have a couple of days in bed, and usually that's it. But of course, some of us end up in the emergency department. And over my time as an emergency physician, I got to treat many, many, possibly hundreds, who knows, maybe thousands of patients with, with influenza over the many years. And there we have things that we didn't have a hundred years ago, right? We have an emergency department. We have um, blood tests that can tell us um, what's happening. Uh, we have uh, x-rays so that we can actually get a real good look at the lungs and see if there's any evidence of secondary pneumonia or even primary pneumonia. We can give people intravenous fluids uh, and treat them in that way. And, of course, we have antibiotics today. Now, let's be very clear Antibiotics should not be given to patients with influenza. They do not work. We all know this, even though they're prescribed unnecessarily often, even today. They don't work. But they do work to help treat the secondary infections, the pneumonias, the bacterial pneumonias that come as a result of the primary viral influenza. And we have those antibiotics today. They were not available. They weren't really not available till the early 30s. And it's a remarkable thing that today we believe that the majority of deaths that occurred in the great flu epidemic were second, were caused by secondary pneumonias that we would be able to treat today. Um, then there are some specific medications that treat the flu. Uh, those are namely uh, things like Tamiflu 
uh, and the new kid on the block, a medication called Boloxavir. Uh, these are direct antiviral medications. I'm not going to go into those directly now. Perhaps we can talk about them uh, later, but um, they're also out there. All right, so that is the treatment. Enemas, bloodletting, laxatives, whiskey. So the treatment. Let's now think about the cause of influenza. What do we know about the cause today, and what did they know 100 years ago? I think in many respects, this is the most uh, frightening aspect of the great influenza pandemic, that they just didn't know what it was caused by. Now, there were some suggestions. Among those suggestions included the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, in fact, the conjunction of the planets. In fact, that's where we get the name influenza from. It's from the, from the Italian influenza, meaning influence. And the earliest thoughts were, in the 1500s, 1600s, were that this disease, and it was an entity that you could identify, uh, this disease was caused by something up in the stars. So there was this theory going around, and we still have this buried in our history when we refer to influenza today. So perhaps conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, rotting animal carcasses were thought to be one possible explanation. Earthquakes and volcanic eruptions were suggested as possible causes. Effluvia, of that word, effluvia discharged into the air from the bowels of the earth. And um, people really didn't know what it was. In fact, at a meeting uh, that occurred in Chicago, public health officials early in the influenza epidemic of 1918, one public health official said the following, we may as well admit it and call it germ X. We have no idea, said the leading public health officials. We don't know what causes it and, and where we are. Now, an example of a cause that was really not a cause was a discovery in 1892 in Berlin by um, some a microbiologists, and they found a bacterium on the lung samples of people who had died from the flu. And they said, aha, this must be the cause of the flu, because it's everywhere, right? And they called this um, bacterium, they called it Bacillus influenza, the influenza bacillus. The problem was that it was not the cause of the disease. It was a secondary pathogen that was found. It was a secondary bacteria. And that thought that they found the, the, the bacteria, and it turned out not to be correct, that happened several, you know, in several different instances in the history of flu. Uh, one of the historians, Alfred Crosby, one of the historians of the, uh, of the great flu, called this discovery of bacillus influenza an, an authoritative sign pointing in the wrong direction. Now, in 1889, there had been a, a small epidemic, but a, still a severe one, in Great Britain. And it was so severe that actually Parliament commissioned a report on the epidemic. And this was reported uh, in 1889 by Henry Parsons. Henry Parsons, and he was a very, very smart person. And we'll see why. He spoke about various theories that may have caused this 1889 uh, epidemic. One of the theories at the time, and I'm not making this up, was tainted Russian oats. The suggestion was that the Russians were bringing their disease from the east through Europe in these tainted Russian oats. Now, Parsons, as I said, was smarter than that, and he, he dug a little deeper. So he suggested, he said, well, it could be the weather. Perhaps there's something floating around in the air, and that is, of course, partially true. There is something um, in the air, although it's person-to-person -person contact more. And he suggested that maybe it's a non-living particulate matter, 
which is actually a remarkably accurate description, isn't it, of what a, a virus turned out to be, a non-living particulate matter. So it was a little prescient there in describing the, uh, the possible cause of the flu. So it was, could be Russian-tainted oats. It could be a poison in midair. Then he suggested, well, what if it's a person-to-person -person contact? It's not spread by oats or volcanoes or stuff in the air, but one person gives it to another. And here, I think, uh, Henry Parsons really showed the right way for us to think about things. He said, let's get some data if it's person-to-person -person contact. So what he did was he looked at the illness rates on the British railway system, and he compared the rates of the engineers who were feeding the steam engines and the coal, who worked outside but far away from people, and he compared those influenza rates, how many people reported sick from that group of workers, he compared those to the rates of influenza among the clerks inside who were selling the tickets. And of course, they are inside, so they're not exposed to the outside, but they're in constant contact with people. And he simply compared the two, and he found that, of course, it was the clerks who had an increased rate of influenza illness because they were in contact with people, and the railway uh, engineers driving the train, standing outside, feeding the coal into that big steam engine, their rates of flu were really much lower than the clerks, even though they were outside exposed to the effluvia and who knows what from volcanoes. And from here he suggested that really it's really probably nothing to do with the atmosphere, but it's more to do with person-to-person -person contact. So from a simple look at some records, this guy Parsons figured out that probably we're onto something in the person-to-person -person sphere. And then he also suggested that perhaps animals have something to do with it. And here he was really on the money. He suggested that perhaps birds or horses or dogs had something to do with the spread. And he goes into this in some detail in his report. And of course, we know today that birds are intimately related to the spread of influenza and new strains. So back in 1889, Henry Parsons, I think, was really onto something when he discussed the possibility uh, that birds were involved. So there's an example, I think, of, of people trying to think this through in a fairly logical way and almost coming to the right conclusion. Now, today, of course, we know what causes influenza. There is no doubt. It's a viral particle, uh, which is many, many times smaller than a bacterium. We're able to take photomicrographs of this when the electron uh, microscope was developed and, and able to be used around uh, 1839. Uh, so we have pictures of, influenza, of the influenza virus, pictures and diagrams. In fact, scientists today know the genetic code of the influenza virus, how its eight viral genes work together, what its viral coat looks like, the proteins on that viral coat, what those proteins do, and how they make us sick. And so the degree of advances, I think, from this suggestion that it's something in, in oats to something that we can see and identify and know a lot about is really, I think, a remarkable example of the progression of science over a century. Now we can identify the viral particle down to its genetic makeup, its genetic construction. So in that respect, we've come a long way in understanding the cause of the disease. Which brings us to the last part now, which is the, the way that we've changed in terms of vaccines and prevention. So there were attempts to produce early vaccines to influenza. Now, Louis Pasteur 
back in the 1880s, had, of course, developed his own set of vaccines, uh, most famously to rabies. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that he, did, he knew what the virus was, but he had a suggestion that it was something that was in the nervous tissue, and he managed to propagate nervous tissue and take samples and, and make them weaker and weaker and weaker until he, he figured out that what he had now was a weakened thing he called a virus, and that's how he produced his rabies vaccine. So we know that people were producing vaccines back then. Uh, but of course, what they were using were bacteria that were secondary pathogens and not the primary pathogen, which was influenza. So, for instance, in early 1919, Edward Rosano from the Mayo Clinic isolated five different kinds of bacteria from patients, and he mixed them all together, and he managed to inoculate over 100,000 people with his vaccine. We're not sure what the clinical outcomes were. The records aren't great, but he certainly tried uh, to do something. Now, in Boston, at the Tufts Medical College, Dr. Timothy Leary made a vaccine. Now, he made a blended vaccine using the strains from the Chelsea Naval Hospital, a nurse's nose from the Kearney Hospital, and the infected wards of Camp Devons, not far from Boston. And he made a concoction and gave them to people. And actually, this, his uh, vaccine ended up being sent to San Francisco, where 18,000 people were inoculated with his vaccine. So that's Dr. Timothy Leary. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is the uncle of the famous Dr. Timothy Leary in Boston, he who wanted us to turn on, tune in, and drop out. It's his uncle who created this attempt at a vaccine 100 years ago. So that's attempts at vaccines back then. What do we do today? What do we have today? Well, we do have vaccines against the flu. Many of us in this room uh, have, will take them every year. Those of us who are involved in healthcare have to get the, the flu vaccine. It makes sense for us to, uh, to, to try and prevent the transmission. Um, but it's really not a very good vaccine. I mean, if you think about it, right, mumps, measles, rubella, polio, you get them once or twice as a kid and you're done, right? You're done. You're finished. That's it. You're good to go. You won't get the disease ever. But in terms of flu, we're told that we need to get it every year, a new flu shot. I just had it last year and the year before. We're dealing with a vaccine that is really not on the same level of effectiveness as these others. In fact, in a good year, in a good year, with the wind blowing in the right direction, the flu vaccine is about 50 to 60% effective at best. At best. So why is this? Right? Why is this flu vaccine so hard to create? And the answer is that we have this hollow ball that contains the eight genes of the flu virus, and it makes uh, these proteins on the surface, and it's against those proteins that the vaccine is created. The problem is that flu is such a good disguiser, a master of disguise, that it changes the makeup of those surface proteins very, very quickly, and it mutates from one kind to another. So that when we think we've figured out what kind of flu is going to be around with species A, well, it turns out that species A then sort of mutates and the vaccine is no longer effective against species A. Oh, and by the way, we didn't realize that species B and C were actually going to be the ones, so we didn't include those in the vaccine, and therefore we weren't, you weren't vaccinated against those. Which is the reason, incidentally, that the reason that some of us get the flu vaccine and we end up with the flu. It's because, not because the vaccine didn't work against that particular strain, but because there were either other strains that we weren't vaccinated against, or because the, the original strain changed its surface structure just that bit so that it was like changing an overcoat from a brown overcoat to a black overcoat, and the immune system didn't recognize it. 
It stays one step ahead of us all the time. And so we still don't have a good influenza vaccine. The way we make the vaccine, incidentally, is we have about 120 or so uh, laboratories across the world run by the World Health Organization. They look at uh, f- samples that are sent to their lab and try and figure out exactly the kind of flu species that is prevalent. Uh, we look at Australia and what they had in their most recent influenza outbreak because it's their, you know, in their winter is our summer. Uh, and we try and figure that out. And incidentally, they do the same for us. So it's that they look at see what happened in the northern hemisphere and, and adjust themselves for the oncoming flu season in the summer. And then doctors make the best educated guess they can. And they say, well, based on the evidence that we have, the most likely species are going to be this and this and this, and we're going to make the vaccine. And to this day, the majority of the, much of the vaccine is produced using eggs. The, the vaccine is very hard to grow, so it's actually grown on eggs, which is the same thing that was used uh, a century ago. There is some vaccine that is made uh, using cell technology, and that allows us to have a, a vaccine that is not created on eggs. But still, those are simply the, the methods that we have today that, that are left over from us uh, 100 years ago. So uh, the majority of the vaccine is still, to this day, uh, has something to do with eggs and needing to be grown on that medium. So in many respects, we're really at the beginning of the fight here against influenza by preventing it and creating a vaccine. Now, while uh, that is all true and it's not a very effective vaccine, we must remember that in certain groups, in certain age groups, it's extremely important to get the vaccine, the high-risk people, right? So those are children, the elderly, uh, those with immune-compromised uh, conditions, people who've been taking steroids or may have undergone chemotherapy, pregnant women, extremely important for pregnant women to get the influenza vaccine. For some reason, there, are the, there is an increased risk of uh, complications from influenza. And so those are some of the, um, the high-risk groups that should certainly be vaccinated. There's no question there. In terms of everybody else, the evidence is that influenza vaccine doesn't really do a whole lot. So what do we need instead? Well, we need a universal flu vaccine, a vaccine that will work from year to year without having to get it again each year, a vaccine that will work in all age groups, and a vaccine that will work in all geographic areas, right? Regardless of what specific strain of flu is running rampant in your area. So that is the goal of the universal flu vaccine. And to do that, we have to target that flu virus, which we understand very well, and find a bit of it that doesn't change. Find a bit of that flu virus that we can target and that our, then our immune systems will recognize and latch onto it and we will kill that virus no matter what particular strain of influenza it was. It sounds easy. It's a very hard thing to do in reality. And um, we're still not there yet. Um, but I will say that, for instance, the National Institutes of Health, where I work, uh, and I just want to pause and, and let you know that I'm not here representing the federal government's views on the great influenza epidemic of 1918. Um, I'm here on my own time, and these are my own personal views. But um, the NIH, where I work, is actually very, very focused on on trying to find a universal flu vaccine, pouring a lot of money and a lot of research time and effort into that. And who knows? Will this work? Will it not work? Will we see a universal flu vaccine? I don't know. So if we look at where we were 100 years ago and where we are today... The treatments are very different, thankfully, but we still lack real good treatments for influenza. We understand the virus in a remarkable and deep and profound way 
in a way that was unimaginable a century ago. But are we able to use that knowledge and then build the vaccine? Not quite yet. We're not there yet, although that's where the research efforts are going. So my hope then, looking forward, is that um, we really will be able to see influenza as not just a story of the past, but as a disease of the past in the way that we think about smallpox as a disease of the past, a disease that was eradicated. It's important to try and uh, move towards this goal. The CDC estimates that anywhere between 30 and 50,000 people each year in the U.S. die of influenza. It's a soft number. It's not an extremely accurate number, but that's the sort of the ballpark figure. So a lot of people still get this disease and die from it. So we really uh, have to try and think about ways that we can improve our own vaccinations so that we will be able to hopefully make a one-day influenza a thing of the past. Thank you for your time. Dr. Jeremy Brown, author of Influenza, The Hundred-Year Hunt to Cure the Deadliest Disease in History, published in 2018. Thank you for listening to the Notable Speeches podcast. We'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about us. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Notable Speeches and get a heads up about new episodes. If you have a question or comment for us, send an email, feedback at notablespeeches.com. I'm Joseph Slife. Please stay safe.